All right, Nathan, how do you say your last name? Error, just like... Error, okay. Yeah, just like NS Error, except it's spelled differently. Your middle initial's S, right? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I've, cons- I've considered getting it legally changed. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 27 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Ben Sherman... Hello from Houston, eagerly awaiting the iPad event. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City, and I don't get to buy anything today. Gene Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Rod Schmidt. Merry Christmas from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have two special guests. We have Kyle Richter. Good morning from Key West. And do you prefer Nate or Nathan? Either one. Nathan, it's up to you. Nathan Error. Hello, I'm also in Houston. All right, do you guys want to do a brief introduction since you haven't been on the show before? Sure, we can do that. Uh, my name is Kyle Richter. I'm the co-founder of Empirical Development. And I'm Nathan Error, and I am the uh, the game development lead for Empirical Development. Awesome. So nobody plays games on their iOS device, so I'm not quite sure why we have you here. No, it's a passing fad for sure. Um, I suspect that they'll just be over in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Once they get hardware controllers, are really going to ruin it. <laughs> do you think? Yeah, that's a, that, do you think that's going to be a thing? <laughs> yeah, they announced it at DubDub that you'll be able to get like sort of a Nintendo like shrink wrapped controller on top of the, the iPhone. I'm still waiting for one of those to come out. I want to play with one. Logic Tech yeah. just uh, released their ad, uh, print ad, a couple of uh, weeks ago for their first one, and uh, mysteriously it shows empty hands holding an iPhone saying something's missing. Oh, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if they got the irony of that. There is there is a, a second one, and the name is escaping me at the moment, that there actually are pictures of. But, yeah, they're, they're starting to come out now, and I think it's going to be a big deal just because of the Apple TV. I think the Apple TV is a much bigger deal than, than people are letting on. I know Kyle agrees with me. Do you think they're oh, ever going to open up the, the Apple TV for developers? Well, I have a, a theory on what's going to happen there, and uh, I don't think they need to open it up. Um, with AirPlay, uh, if you keep the price of the Apple TV down to $99 and use AirPlay to... Uh, to use it as a next-gen gaming console, you don't really have to do anything. The big problem that we have is with no tactile feedback on the iPhone, you can't see what you're tapping on the iPhone while playing a game on the Apple TV. But with the game controllers, you would be able to do that now. So you kind of have a game controller in your pocket that has a GPU on it that you hook up to any Apple TV and start playing instantly. Hmm. I wonder about the lag, though. Because uh, what was that game? Um, Real Racing, was it? that uh, they, they demoed live where you could have like four people racing at the same time on the same Apple TV. And uh, we tried that at the office and uh, just with two people. And the lag was enough to make me not want to do it again. Yeah, definitely the, uh, the lag's the, uh, the last piece of the puzzle that they need. The uh, game controllers were the, uh, the big hardware problem. But, you know, in theory, it's all on the LAN. It should be super fast. The Wi-Fi pipes are more than big enough to, uh, to carry the video. It's just a matter of optimizing the uh, Apple TV away from uh, being designed to stream video where, you know, second lag didn't really matter to something that's designed to uh, handle interactive games where they have to really get that lag time up. Yeah, latency is always going to be the issue, especially with games. I mean, everyone expects there is 60 frames per second, and for good reason. But 
it's getting better and it's it's already a lot better than it was when that first announcement was made um and uh, i'm i'm assuming especially with uh um as a lot of things in the in the game world this stuff t- kind of takes time right we kind of wait for technology to catch up to what to where we want it to be and you know i think uh you know apple's already pushing the 802.11ac standard and you know yeah that's going to be a few years down the road before we see that in apple tvs and ios devices but you know the uh the storm is coming so for right now um what what generally is your approach to building games on the ios platform I'll let Nathan field that one yeah, since he's okay. kind of in charge of uh, that for the company. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I uh, had my mute there. Um, yeah, the um, in, in gen- it really depends on the type of game. Right, there are multiple different uh, approaches you can take. Is it you know, uh, is it a three D game? Is it a two D game? Is it you know, an action action packed fast twitch kind of game? Is it more of an RPG? Is it none of those and something more like trivia or a word game? You know, depending on the type of game it is, will kind of uh, decide help decide part of your process. You know, first of all, what tools do you use? You know, you you go straight up uh, Objective C and use um, UI Kit. I mean, yes, probably if it's a word game, uh, unless you're Lauren Brichter, or a um, or if it's a trivia game or something like that. But you know, is it if it's a two D game? You know, maybe you hop on the uh, uh, the new hotness in iOS 7 and you use SpriteKit and that kind of, uh, while SpriteKit is, is really cool, you know, it definitely has some of its own limitations. And so uh, the first thing to decide is what tools to use. You know, 3D game, do you want to use a 3D engine uh, like Unity, which most likely you want to use some type of engine for a 3D game rather than building your own uh, just because that's a pretty complex process and you'd waste all of your time building the engine and not actually make a fun game. You know, so do you use the Unity engine or, or uh, Unreal's UDK or uh, some of the other uh, third-party engines, most of which, most of the, pretty much at this point, all of the good 3D engines are all commercial. The open source ones have kind of died off because the commercial ones have gotten pretty cheap, uh, licensing-wise. Uh, but for 2D, you know, there's Cocos 2D, and then, of course, there's now uh, Apple's Sprite Kit. And you can even do quite a bit. And I've done this built, you know, uh, it, with, with UIKit. There's no reason to do it now because the, the physics engine, even though it is in, is in UIKit, using SpriteKit is so easy. There's really no reason to use UIKit's physics engine for a game, but you probably could. So long story short, first you have to decide what kind of game it is. And, uh, you know, you need to decide 2D, 3D, uh, which platforms you're going to be on. Uh, you know, because as a one one advantage you have building a game is, um, and this can be looked at as an advantage or a disadvantage, is games are expected to have very different uh, and unique UIs compared to uh, you know any other standard app, right? They're they're expected to be very custom, and so it's much easier to design a game to be cross-platform than it is to. Uh, design, you know, an app to be cross-platform because you're most likely not going to be using most of the system UI APIs. You know, in a lot of cases, it's just a GL, an OpenGL view, and that's really the only thing, the only you know view you would use from the system. Everything else is custom. So, um, you know, so if you're going cross-platform, then you need to decide: are you going to do that all by yourself, uh, or are you going to use a cross-platform engine like Unity? So it really comes down to deciding what you want, where you want the game to be, and how you want it to look. And then from there, it's a, uh, it's not much different than standard development. I mean, it's, uh, 
it's just software with a slightly different uh, slightly different approach. I don't know enough about game development to really uh, know what all goes into it. Um, how much of it is artwork versus how much of it is programming? At least 50-50. The artwork is extremely important, obviously. And then there, and it's not just, you know, your standard, uh, you know, flat 2D or, you know, uh, image PNG assets sometimes. I mean, often games have, uh, you know, characters, whether they're humanoid or not, that have some type of animation, you know, and that animation has to be, is often, you know, pre, pre-built and pre-canned, you know, like a, a character running and jumping and throwing, those kinds of things. Those kinds of animations are usually pre-built by an artist uh, and brought into the game. So the, there's definitely a lot. And then there's also audio, of course, not just background music, but also uh, environmental audio, whether it's the, uh, you know, the background uh like there's atmospheric audio, there's also music. So atmospheric audio would be like, you know, birds chirping and stuff like that. Then there's music and then there's also sound effects, which, you know, could be, uh, you know, people getting punched or dying or, you know, whatever they might be. Uh, so there's a lot of different uh, creative assets that go in as well, both audio and visual. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think and art, art and sound are at least half of the work, if not more. In building a game, so you, and and the the thing, and you can't. The art is different, right? There's uh, the design, the the way you build the art is different. The way you package the art is different. You know, and if you're doing you know animations, there are multiple ways of doing that. You can have an artist pre-build the animations into frame into keyframes, and you pre-render them and just play them, uh, or you can use more. Um, uh, use like inverse kinematic animation kind of stuff, whereas humanoid animations, which are, are built in a th- in another tool, something like Maya or, uh, or 3ds max or something like that by an artist, which then you play in your, in your engine. So, so yeah, art is at least half of it. And, uh, it does require having a good artist with a knowledge of, of production art to really, especially if you're doing a 3d game, 2d games, you can get away with a little more, a little less, kind of game development knowledge because you're mostly just building, you know, 2d images, just PNGs that you build in Photoshop. So it, it goes without saying that, you know, Tetris is obviously going to be a lot more development than art, whereas something like uh, infinity blade two is probably uh, more art time than development time. So it depends on what type of game you're looking at. I mean, there are very simplistic artwork games like, uh, yeah, I don't want to say letterpress is a simplistic game, but the, uh, the artwork for it is, uh, is not as in depth as a first person shooter would be doodle jump. Yeah, Infinity Blade is just a UI gesture recognizer played on top of a a, a movie, right? <laughs> it, it, it almost so seems it like it's that old myth type game where it's just animating through the uh, the still movies, the uh, that old style they used to do. Um, Bloodbath was a an old Mac game that did that, where it was um, it's a original first person single point shooter. And it was just, you know, uh, masked images of uh, movies of things popping up and getting shot and popping back down. So sometimes it feels like we're going back to that world on yeah, the like, uh, iOS. Like Dragon's Lair. Yeah, like Dragon's Lair, absolutely. Oh, man. Yeah, just old pre-canned stuff, old uh, arcade stuff. Was, uh, I mean, even, even those animations in um, uh, Mortal Kombat, I mean, that was, uh, that was only partially interactive, right? Those animations were all pre-canned, like, people. It's really strange to look back at it now, but it's, it's still kind of cool. 
Yeah, um, especially the uh, the complex fatality stuff in Mortal Kombat. Yeah. It's all just uh, masked videos. You know, and you, you mentioned, we both mentioned Letterpress a couple times now, and you mentioned it from an art perspective. I don't know this for sure because I haven't actually talked to Lauren, but I get the impression that there's actually no art in Letterpress other than, like, the icon. It, it looks like it's all, by no art, I mean, you know, like, PNG resources and stuff like that. There's virtually nothing, virtually none in there. It's all fonts and um, and all rendered on the fly. So, you know, that's almost like a no art game compared, like you said, to Infinity Play, which is probably... I'd say probably at least three quarters of the work we're doing art and animations. Now, Nathan, you uh, you brought up an interesting point there about letterpress. I actually uh, I have a copy of the IPA on my computer, and I just dropped it into Slender, which can actually uh, reverse compile out the assets. You're entirely correct. There's only 18 <laughs> assets uh, inside the project for a total of 232 kilobytes, so it's almost all completely rendered in code. Yeah, this I got that feeling. So perfect, it's almost like it was rehearsed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I was actually doing favorite. that exact thing, except with a different uh, tool. Uh, not a different tool like for pay, but like just the uh, App Crush uh, script that can unpack the IPAs for you. It's it's one of my favorite little hidden features of Slender. I like to uh, to see how other people built their uh, app. So we uh, we tossed it in kind of last minute, and it's always really neat to to kind of you know toss an app in and see what can happen. It also really upsets other developers when I email them and say, "Hey, do you know you can save twenty seven percent of the download speed <laughs> off Angry Birds if you remove these duplicate images." That's so it awful. definitely uh, gets me in some trouble sometimes. So one of the the holdups I would have, um, I think I. I've probably set a record somewhere for like most game programming books purchased and read without ever producing a single game. I'm like fascinated by the topic in general, but just kind of whenever I would get started, I would always get hung up on, on something like one of, one of them was like, there were no good game engines way back in the day. So you would always start by writing your own game loop. And a lot of that stuff is solved. And now it seems like the problem is lack of artwork. Since I'm not a designer, I would have to either just get some like sprite sheets that are freely available on the internet, and then you can't really ship with those. I'm wondering, like, what are the challenges that you guys see with building a game? Is it is it artwork or is it something else? Well, I think because we're all developers, uh, you know, artwork seems to be the uh, the big problem for us. I think uh, most developers, and I'm sure I'm going to get some backlash on this, we, we started being developers because we wanted to make video games because they're the most interesting thing on the computers when we were growing up with them is, you know, I want to make games too. I want to make a game just for myself. And I think we all had that experience when we first started kind of playing around with games is, you know, I can't draw. So I have a bunch of stick figures running across the screen. It's really not interesting. So what a lot of people have done is, you know, they a single developer partner up with a, a single designer and they'll produce, you know, a, a world-class game. And that's really what you need to do um, if you want to be that one-man shop with a, with a, a game like that. Um, not a lot of developers have that artistic talent and not a lot of uh, really talented artists have that uh, developer talent. So it's really kind of a partnership you have to form. I mean, the, the amount of developers that uh, can do game art and make it look really good, I think I can count on one hand that I've met. How, how do you learn how to kind of speak designer as a developer? 
<laughs> practicing uh, a lot of practice and a lot of trial and error. Um, yeah, they, they have a completely different mindset, and um, especially getting a uh, an artist who hasn't done games before. It's like getting an artist who hasn't done an app before. They don't understand how things need to be sliced up. They don't understand how things need to be presented, and they might be able to do some really cool concept art, but it just doesn't work in the, the real world. Um, Nathan's working on a, a game project with us right now where you know the artist will design these beautiful mock-ups for the uh, iPhone screen and you know it's it's kind of a, a first-person you know 2D scrolling game like Mario and the uh, the artwork doesn't really lend itself to that kind of scrolling behavior it's not you know something that can be continuous so it uh, it definitely raises a lot of problems for the uh, the artist and it takes a long time for them to learn you know what goes into a game as well because when you're playing a game you don't really think about all the pieces that have to be put in there together even from an artwork perspective which is very visible to us as you know as opposed to the uh, the code so it's it's definitely a lot of trial and error if you're working with an artist who's never done a game before it's definitely a lot of back and forth and arguing yeah there's there's really a, a very strict delineation between and a big difference between concept art and production art in a game you know like if you're concepting out if you're an artist concepting out like an app you know a, 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 a regular non-game app in photoshop you know a large percentage of what you do in photoshop can easily be translated directly into the app where in a game when you concept out stuff, you know, your concept, because a game is a continuously moving simulation, right? So, um, you know, there aren't, there's very little uh, static content. The screens don't, the screens don't just stop in a spot. Things are always moving. uh, And, you know, hopefully at least 60 times a second, your world is being simulated. And so uh, the art that you build, that you design as a concept, while it might look great, requires a completely set, different set of skills to turn into production art. You know, like if you have uh, a, a background, if it's a 2D game and say you have a background landscape, you know, that landscape needs to be repeatable in some way. Uh, you know, you need to be able, uh, you know, so if, uh, if you're going to you know, be moving side to side, we're talking about moving side to side in 2D, for example, um, you know, and you have a, a landscape in the background, then as the character moves, you don't want, you have to be able to repeat that landscape, right? So each edge of the image has to be, you know, perfectly tileable, and you know things like so. There are things like that that you need to consider when doing production art, and uh, it is a, it's a different skill. It's not as uh, creative, I guess, as you know, doing concept art would be. So it's also difficult to tug artists in that direction. Sometimes there are some that really like to do pr- uh, production art, and in a lot of cases, you know, just out of pure necessity, I've become pretty. Uh, decent with Photoshop just out of necessity to turn concept art into something I can actually use in a real game. Nathan touched on an interesting point there and it's a uh, tileable art, uh, which is kind of the bane of our existence when doing game dev is, um, you have a very limited uh, amount of VRAM, which stores the uh, the textures in it, the uh, the actual artwork. So you really want to try to cut down on that and make everything as uh, repeatable as, uh, as possible. And uh, the people doing the concept art, they don't think in terms like that. They'll think, you know, let me hand you a, a sky map that's, you know, eight megabytes. And it doesn't really tile at all. So you have to kind of fight that battle as well. Yeah, and, and you run into multiple different issues depending on what type of game it is, right? You know, if uh, some of these issues aren't, some of them are optimization issues. Some of the background stuff can be an optimization issue, especially, you know, if it's a if it's a standard kind of platformer game where you're designing the levels, you know, 
a game designer is designing the levels manually, uh, you know, but if it's a procedurally generated game, then there are all kinds of other issues that get thrown in there, you know, that you need to, uh, if it's, if it's not procedurally generated, then you can hand tweak the levels, you know, even with some of the repeating backgrounds and stuff, if there's like a little quirk somewhere, you can hide that quirk, you know, by putting something else on top of it. But if you're doing things procedurally, it's a lot more difficult to find those quirks until you start, until you actually run the game. So there's a lot of a import the art, code what I need, run it, tweak a little bit, stop it, tweak a little bit, run it, tweak a little bit. And I'd say as a developer or a game designer, that last kind of uh, 20%, you know, of the game development, that tweaking part is actually a lot more than 20%. I, I spend probably more time tweaking float values and, or, you know, sizes of things than I do actually writing code, it feels like sometimes, uh, just because you never know what's going to feel right. Uh, and that's a really important concept to get uh, across in game development, that one of the, probably the best things you can do, if you're, if you're starting to build a game and you've never done it before, Probably one of the best things you can do to your, do for yourself and for your game uh, is to get to a working prototype as quickly as possible and play it. At least you can play it because then you'll know very quickly whether or not it's fun. You know, is the concept not going to be fun? Uh, is just my implementation not going to be fun? Uh, or do I need to tweak it a little bit? You know, and then get into the hands of other people and get feedback from them as well, and hopefully actually watch them play it over their shoulder. But it's really, it's really, really important in a game to get something up and running as quickly as possible uh, because really what makes a game fun isn't the initial concept as much as it is the feel of a game, especially if, like uh, an action type of game. You know, getting that exact right value for, you know, the, uh, your player's mass so when he, when he jumps, you know, he jumps at the right pace. And so... Uh, you know, all those kinds of things, getting that exact right number, it could be, you know, the difference between 5.01 and 5.015 uh, for a value. You know, you just don't know. You have to tweak until you get it right. And uh, and I won't even get into the differences between hardware and making that a problem. But uh, the, the cool thing about developing a game from that perspective is it is, is just as much of an art as it is, you know, pure engineering. Uh, even as an engineer, you're spending a lot of time kind of tweaking the feel of things, uh, at least if you're an indie. You know, if you're in a big AAA shop, you know, you're coding a part of the engine and that's it. Uh, but if you're, you know, doing it on a small team, then everyone is constantly running and tweaking and changing values and uh, uh, everyone becomes a designer and has a, has a lot of creative say in the game at that point. And that's when it gets really fun. And do you, en- do you end up having to, just because that feedback cycle of like you're tweaking some like, multiplication factor for some mass, you know, uh, you know, acceleration and gravity and whatever, uh, in order to make the game feel right. And you'd switch this value around and rebuild and run to that port of the game where you can jump up on the ledge and make sure it feels right. Do you ever do things like embed those controls within your game in like a dev build so you can tweak those settings? Absolutely. This is where tools become really important. Something that game developers every game developer I know loves to do is to build tools. Pretty much every game project I've ever been on has had at least one custom tool of some kind to make the process easier. And, uh, and then there are, you know, the, the things built into the engines that help with that kind of stuff as well. You know, we use unity for a lot of our games, the unity engine, unity 3d engine, not only because it's cross platform, but also because the unity editor is a really good environment for that. You can actually run the game. You, there's a, you can actually just hit you know, command keep P or press the play button and your game executes immediately inside of the editor and you can tweak the values while it's running. 
and get some of that feel. Although it's not the same as running it on a device, it kind of gets you part of the way there. And then, yes, one of the other things you want to get in the game as quickly as possible is a way to tweak those values when it's running on a device. You know, whether that's a developer console that pops up or um, I've done, you know, just open up a, a basic Telnet session over TCP and send commands. I've even seen games, I haven't done this myself, but I've seen people go as far to, as to embed an HTTP server directly into the debug build uh, so they can uh, send HTTP requests to, and have a little, you know, pop open the browser so they can tweak values in the browser while they're running the game. That's um, awesome. It's almost like a, a remote HTTP quick console. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, another way, and another thing you can do is use the debugger for that, obviously. But um, but having a having something where you, uh, especially you know, in the case like in, Empirical, for example, our team is distributed. You know, so um, so. It's it's really nice if I can get to all of uh, all the guys on the team and give them a way to uh, pop open a developer console, change some values, and then the changes they make can be sent back to me in some way uh, or one of the developers to change things up. And yeah, so that tweaking, like getting that that'd be the other thing you want to get as quickly as possible is to get the thing running, and so you can start tweaking the feel. And yeah, to really shorten that build run cycle. You know, even if it's just a configuration file that you can, uh, you know, that doesn't doesn't work as well on iOS, obviously. But if you're working on a Mac or something, uh, you know, just changing some values in a configuration file really quickly, and uh, it can also make it easy. And then also having ways to get to those, you know, those levels, right? So if you're tweaking yeah, something that only like happens straight to it, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. If you're tweaking something that only happens in a certain part of a certain level, find ways to warp to that part and get everything set up properly. Um, yeah, so there's you'll definitely find game developers spend a, a good portion of their time, I'd say a third, maybe even more of their time building tools to make the actual process easier and more, uh, um, more fruitful. Because the whole, the whole goal, right, is to get a fun game. And, what, and discovering that, and you don't really design a fun game as much as you kind of discover a fun game. Uh, you definitely have some ideas of what you think might be fun, and you put things together in a way that hopefully will be fun. But the final product is never what the original thought was, the original design was. It's really, you kind of discover it through tweaking and testing and getting in front of other people and that kind of stuff. What you guys are uh, talking about here is actually where cheat codes came from. Um, the developers of uh, early on games entered cheat codes into games, Black not to allow you yeah. to, not to cheat, but so they could test stuff. You know, jump the levels, unlock weapons, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you know, they just started eventually leaving them turned on and in the game, and they became cheat codes as we know them. So it's definitely not a new concept or anything like that. That you know, allowing developers to uh, kind of cheat their way through a game. But uh, it's been with us since really the uh, beginning of video gaming. So I want to go back to something you said earlier about the the sort of scrolling uh, side scrolling games. Um, I did a uh, game development uh, session at uh, at a conference, and as a result of it, I wanted to have like a cool game demo. So I downloaded the uh, Metroid sprites, which was really freaking awesome. So you had like the you know Samus running around, and um, I could hit the tap the screen to make her jump. And uh, she would do the flip animation and then continue running. But it was uh, an endless scroller, kind of like uh, Cannabalt or um, uh, Temple Run, right? And one thing I noticed is, so I had this ground texture that was like, I don't know, twice the screen width. And I would move it from, I would, I would just move it underneath her and keep the player stationary, right? Um, and then when it got sufficiently far off screen, um, I would, you know, deallocate that particular ground texture and allocate a new one, you know, 
far up in the future. And it gave you this illusion that uh, you were running on ground forever. But uh, what I noticed is that the dialic and the realic of the new of the new class, the new object, even though I was using the same texture, that was a perceptible hiccup in the animation. And so oh, yeah. what I ended up doing is just recycling it exactly how you would recycle table view cells. And uh, I'm wondering, like, you know, uh, this sort of mindset shift that you have, like, very little time to do your work. What techniques do you tend to use or what do, things do you stay away from inside of your game loop to avoid things like this? So the, uh, the really interesting thing with game development is, um, unlike a normal app, you're, you're rendering the, the entire game loop, the entire scene, you know, 60 or so times a second. So optimization really comes into play a lot more than it comes into with a, a normal app. So even shaving off a couple of milliseconds for a caller, you know, an OpenGL reset identity can make a really big difference. Nathan, I'm sure you have some uh, particular optimizations that you, uh, you like to use over and over again. Yeah, there are a lot of standard things. The recycling thing is very common. I mean, uh, like Kyle said, if you want your game to render at 60 frames per second, then everything, including all the other overhead required to render, not just your calculations that you need to do, but every 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 bit of overhead from sending textures across the, to the GPU and all that kind of stuff to actually finally blit the final image on screen, you have 0.017 seconds to do all of that. And and uh, you have to do it consistently in under 0.017 seconds, or uh, your game will hiccup. You will know, drop frames. So yeah, there are a ton of optimizations. First, you hit on one of them, and that's that's reuse. Uh, alloc- allocating on pretty much any platform, you know, malloc is slow. Allocating memory is slow, and so it doesn't really matter what engine, what platform you're on. You know, pre-allocating stuff as you need a lot. So something you'll you'll hear game develop, especially game developers that come from the console world. You know, I did I did my console time back in uh, the PS2 and GameCube days, and uh, it hasn't really changed since then, from what I understand. Something that you'll hear console developers complain about when they move to something like the iPhone is virtual memory, right? You know, as a console developer, like on a like on a PlayStation or something like that, you're given a block of memory. You know exactly how big that block of memory is, and it's always yours for the entire uh, run of your of your game, right? And you can allocate however you want. You can use that memory however you want, but it's yours, and nothing's going to get swapped anywhere. That's your memory. Obviously, you don't get that on iOS. You're you know, forced to use the whole virtual memory system, which can kind of can occasionally fraught with peril <laughs> if you don't use it carefully. And so, like what a lot of game developers will do, uh, and I you know I do this too, and a lot of in most of the games I build is to pre-allocate everything. That whole launch cycle. You know, the loading or loading is, you know, load as much stuff in advance as possible, right? You know, get to that first launch screen as quickly as you can. But while they're picking through the menu, you should be loading everything else. Because if you need to allocate a lot of objects during the execution of a, of a, uh, of a run loop, it's not something you think about too often, you know, when you're building a regular app. But, I mean, really, every line of code that you write is all going to be put together and, uh, and going to be run all at the same time. And it all has to run in under 0.017 seconds. So that little bit of overhead it takes to allocate and init an object is going gonna, is gonna to cause a lot of trouble. So pre-allocating things and just kind of keeping them off to the side, you know, um, uh, so kind of building things up in memory, but not, not necessarily rendering them because you don't want to necessarily things that aren't, uh, let's move to the next thing. So pre-allocating, setting things up and not calling, not doing any kind of allocating during the run of the app is, is as important as possible. Uh, strategically using the stack versus the heap. And then, 
the, ne- the, the next thing would be only rendering what's necessary, right? So there, and we're talking about iOS here, so I'll take some very um, uh, iOS-specific uh, approaches. But um, the iOS uh, GPU is a, is a, um, a tile-based renderer, and uh, it works best when it can decide when it when it knows exactly what to do on each uh, for each pixel, right? So when um, we kind of I'm trying to think of a better way of saying this. Um, so when you render a scene to the screen, and this even this is even true in UI Kit, what's going on in the background is you know every uh, every pixel that needs to be rendered, you need to decide what color that pixel is going to be for that particular frame, right? So if you're rendering a game, say. And you have uh, multiple layers on top of other layers. Uh, if one of those layers is being obscured, or you know, say you have say ten layers deep of something, right? And you have to, but you have to render each layer before you get to the final one. That's a lot of overhead. That's uh, that's called an overdraw in the game world. So, for example, so that that's where the whole transparency issue becomes a big deal. And that's something if you've done any work with. Uh, with scroll views and table views and that kind of stuff, you've probably dealt with opacity and transparency uh, because similar issues when you're trying to scroll a table view real fast at 60 frames per second, you want to uh, give the GPU as little to do as possible, right? So if you have 10 layers of things where they all could potentially be transparent because they have an alpha, they have an alpha value, then um, each of those need to be rendered in succession, and then you blend on top of them. But if you can do things like, if you know, for example, something is going to be completely opaque, then flag it as opaque, and then you don't need to worry about rendering anything underneath it. The The renderer in the GPUs is very smart at, um, very intelligent at, at deciding, oh, this thing's opaque, so I don't need to worry about even trying to draw anything behind it. It won't even, the GPU won't even call uh, the shaders to get that pixel, it'll just grab the first one. That's kind of what it's built for. And then, so, uh, oh, go ahead. I have a quick question. Maybe not so quick, but <laughs> um, I was at a really good presentation by Jonathan Bloxham at, at CocoConf, and he was talking about all just sort of lay the land of all the graphics technologies available on Mac and iOS, and um, how we have SceneKit and SpriteKit, and we have GLKit, and I was looking uh, specifically at, uh, I can't remember which one it was actually now, I think it was SceneKit where uh, you can do a lot of things without necessarily knowing about like vertex shaders and pixel shaders and all the stuff in, in, uh, what is it, OpenGL ES 2.0? Right. And those are things that since I'm kind of old school, I learned way before shaders existed. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy to take on these sort of higher level abstractions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm wondering if those things, like make sense to build on top of those things or do you find yourself like wanting to drop down into these lower levels? No, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, and that's actually kind of, it, it, it kind of cuts both ways there because uh, you can do a lot just using those technologies. And, you know, most of the stuff you're going to do in, uh, you know, vertex and, and fragment shaders is the same stuff over and over again. Right. Because, um, you know, a lot of the stuff you learned when you were doing fixed function in GL, which I also did back in the late nineties, you know, before there was a, a, a shader language, you know, even, even a lot of the stuff you would do in that part of the pipeline, the rendering part of the pipeline is just replicated in shaders. Anyways, there's a lot of standard shaders that basically do what you would have done in the fixed function pipeline. And you use a lot of that stuff anyway. Now there are definitely a lot of optimizations you can do using, uh, using shaders from, uh, you know, to both optimize rendering speed, to optimize binary size, 
um, you know, I've seen some really interesting stuff done in shaders where, uh, you know, uh, the parts of the in, parts of the environment in a 3D world, like a f- like flags waving in the wind, are actually all implemented inside of a shader, and all of the data for how a flag should wave is embedded in the PNG in the alpha channel. You know, things like this. You can do crazy stuff like that for optimization's sake with shaders, and so it's nice to have them when you need that. But the majority of what you're going to do. Uh, especially if you're building a 2D game, is you're, you're going to be using the standard stuff anyway. So, no, absolutely. The, what, I, what I said before about getting something running very quickly and testing it and playing it and making it fun, that's much more important than than having access to that other stuff. So if that gets you there faster, then use that. You might end up having to switch later for some for whatever reason. Uh, you know, you're running into performance issues and you just can't do what you want with um, uh, with the technology you're currently using. You know, occasionally you have to switch. But yeah, no, it's totally great to use those things. I, I highly recommend them. Because I come from the world of doing GL by hand, I, you know, I feel a little hamstrung when I don't have them, but that doesn't mean I actually would use them anyway in a lot of cases. I mean, I don't right. use them when I do UI kit stuff. <laughs> right. I wonder if we could switch the conversation a little bit and talk about some of the facilities that iOS has beyond graphics to facilitate gaming uh, specifically, I'm talking about Game Center. We have like the like the matchups and the leaderboards and that sort of stuff. Yeah, Game Center is uh, is really amazing technology for anybody who's uh, done leaderboards or achievements or multiplayer before the uh, the days of Game Center. That stuff was a nightmare. I remember back in the uh, the iPhone 2.0 days before it was even called iOS, uh, doing a leaderboard for a game, and you know we had to write a PHP server and we had to implement anti hack and stuff. Um, with the way that Game Center set up, is everybody's got accounts now. All the stuff shared across it, and uh, you know access and leaderboards. Uh, achievements is all, you know, maybe 20, 30 lines of code to get that all set up and running. So it really saves you a, a lot of headache. Um, the multiplayer stuff is really amazing too, especially the uh, the matchmaking. Um, if there are enough people, you know, out there looking for a game, matchmaking can really add a lot to the uh, the platform. And you don't have to worry about error uh, correction or anything like that. Um, turn-based multiplayer was added in iOS 5, and that really uh, came around and added a, a whole new element to the multiplayer stuff. And Apple continues to kind of expand on Game Center and add to it. Um, a lot people don't know that uh, Game Center even has a, a voice chat engine built into it. And anybody who's ever worked with uh, voice over IP uh, knows that that stuff's a real nightmare to uh, to get right. So with uh, Game Center, you can actually get that up and running. And I think it's uh, four lines of code is all you need to uh, to get that all set up. So it really makes uh, game development a lot easier and it adds all that stuff that people are looking to for a game. Um, you know, shipping an app without a leaderboard now or a game without a leaderboard now is really unthinkable and uh, Game Center kind of gives it to you for very, very low overhead. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm still surprised that so few of... I have actually haven't found any apps that I can think of off the top of my head games that use the voice chat feature. I think it's really cool and it's amazing how easy it is to use and I really don't know of anyone who's using it. Is it only real time or could you do like a I'm trying to think asynchronous voice so like if I'm playing letterhead, uh, letterpress and I'm like oh man check out this word or something like that and I could record it is it more just real time VoIP? Well, it's it's built on top of the uh, AV foundation kits for sound. So if you wanted to do kind of a, a delayed message, like leaving a voicemail for somebody, you wouldn't even have to go down to a level of um, voice chat. You would just kind of record that audio and uh, pass it over as a part of the game data to the next player. So it's even easier than that. But you know, a lot of games just don't 
you know, think people are interested in uh, real-time chat or any kind of delayed asynchronous chat, uh, especially any turn-based games. You know, it doesn't make sense that you can't talk to your opponent in them. It's always been kind of a pet peeve of mine that, you know, you're playing Scrabble or Letterpress or Risk with somebody on, you know, iOS using turn-based and you can't, you know, communicate with that person at all. It's it's really frustrating sometimes. And the, uh, the technology and the tools are all given to us for, you know, like I said, very low overhead uh, from Game Center and GameKit to do that. You guys talked a little bit at the beginning about that, you know, game programming is part of the reason that you got to, into development in the first place. And I think that's true for a lot of developers. But when they get into you know, actually doing work as a career, you know, they're doing line of business, web apps, something like that. But you guys actually made the switch where you're doing a lot of game development and actually you know, doing it as part of your job, not just some night and, night and weekend thing. Can you guys talk a little bit about how you guys made the switch to do that? Sure, it's it's a hard switch to make. Um, the the problem that you have is, you know, like you said, everybody wants to be a game developer. Everybody wants to, to work on games because they're perceived as very fun. You know, you, you think that being a video game tester, you get to sit around and play games all day. You know, same thing with a game developer is you think that's kind of the the world that it is. Um, so the the market's really crowded. Um, unfortunately, when the market's really crowded, it's hard to get a job for. It. And when you can get a job for, it, it's usually not as uh, well paying as a, a typical development job doing databases or websites. So uh, the problem that, you know, I had and a lot of other people had was, you know, we taught ourselves to be programmers. We went to college or school to uh, to be programmers to make games, and then very quickly we realized there's not a lot of money in it. Um, with iOS, there can be a lot of money in it, but there's also a lot of games. And it's a, you know, I like to call it kind of a lottery. Um, you can make a, a really great game. I'm sure there's thousands and thousands of really amazing games out there that nobody has ever, you know, downloaded or never really took off. So, you know, the problem is you can put a ton of time into it and not actually make any money off it. You spend more than a year making a game and never actually see any profit from it. Whereas if you're a consultant for somebody else, if you're, you know, working in a, a cubicle job, you know you're getting paid for the time you're putting into it. So there's a lot of risk involved with it. Um, as far as working professionally for a game development shop like Empirical Development, it's really good to, to kind of build up that portfolio. And it's kind of a catch-22 too is you can't build up the portfolio if you're not you know working in the the career field what you want to do is you want to you know work on hobbyist programs you want to join you know some open source uh, games that are out there and there are plenty of uh, games out there that are written in the open source kind of mentality i haven't seen too many on the ios platform but definitely on uh, mac and windows and linux there's a lot of you know open source kind of contributed games out there so you know the the trick is just do a lot of it build up the portfolio and uh, more so with any other type of developer out there for games developers it's all about your portfolio it's what you've worked on it's what you've done for those games and you know any developers can be looking at your portfolio but with a, a gaming portfolio it's it's doubly important yeah it, the problem with getting into the game industry per se like as a developer at, an, at a studio especially a bigger studio is you know they're notorious for taking advantage of the fact that that you can make games there and pretty much any kid in college wants to make a game Right. And uh, and as you know, I'm not a kid in college anymore, so I'm not willing to spend, you know, 80 hour weeks working for virtually no pay on just kind of really go for kind of jobs in the code base. You know, I want I want to help build the game. Right. And that's not what you get, especially coming out as kind of an entry level person into the into the into the video game industry. I was lucky and got kind of got steered away from that approach like i was I'm almost headed down that route when i first came out and i got steered away from it into the the middleware and tools side 
you know, and that was an interesting kind of entry into the game development industry was working on compilers and debuggers and profilers and that kind of stuff for consoles, you know, and that was, uh, so that's, that's a kind of another kind of backdoor way into the industry is, you know, and me, I, I'm, I'm a graphics geek, you know, as much as I'm, I love games, I really love computer graphics. Right. And so, so I, I found other ways to, to use my, um, to work on graphics without working on games, which, you know, whether I was working, I worked on some visualization toolkits and stuff like that. I always kind of went for, tried to go for gigs that were heavy on, uh, you know, things that are important to game development, like graphics or tools and optimization, that kind of stuff. You know, so I kind of had the foundation for actually building a game without having to, uh, to suffer at the hands of, uh, you know, uh, Activision or EA or something. But right now, yeah, build a game. I mean, build a game and put it out there. You're probably not going to make any money off of it, so you might as well make it free so more people see it. And uh, that's the only way you're going to kind of break in or to actually, you know, become part of, uh, you know, the best way to become a game developer is to make a game. And it um, doesn't really matter what it is. Just start doing it. Like I said, get to something you can, you can build, something you can touch as quickly as possible, and then um, and tweak it from there. You know, you're already a programmer, so you know how to do that. So get something you can touch as quickly as possible and start tweaking it, and eventually you'll, you'll kind of, a game will pop out the other side. It just takes a lot of, you know, a lot of time and kind of dedication, and uh, you have to really want to do it because it's, game development is not easy. So it's... Uh, Getting into it is is difficult because it's not easy and because it seems so cool from the outside. I would uh, venture a guess and say that there's not many entry level game positions out there for iOS, and the ones that are out there, there's probably just unbelievable competition on. So you know, make sure you're not entry level. Work on games in your spare time. You know, do what a lot of us did when we were trying to to get into a platform that we love. Is once you come home from your day job, just you sit all night and you work on a code that you're passionate about, and you know, you'll get some products out there. If you make something for yourself, then you know, hopefully, other people will like it, and you can uh, kind of take off with them. Yeah. So work sense. those nights and weekends. That's what I'm hearing. Do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's uh, there's just not a, a lot of space for uh, people coming in who aren't experienced with it already. Yeah. The yeah. the um, the competition is too is too fierce. The budgets are too tight, and uh, you know it's it's really hard to justify bringing someone on to get them trained up. You know. Yep. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily has to be like something that you shy away from because it's because it's a crowded market or it's difficult to get into. Because for for me, I was learning how to do object-oriented programming and I was really interested in software design and games were a way to flex those like different parts of my programming muscles and exercise things that I would normally not think about, like a game loop or running things efficiently or scene graphs or whatever, just lots of things like that. So I think there's value in just doing it as, as a way to advance your own uh, sort of skills. Yeah, it'll definitely make you a better developer. Just like learning a new programming language will make you a better developer. You know, anything you do that's out of your comfort zone and makes you think about things from a different angle will make you better. I, the amount of optimization you need to do to get a game to run right is only going to help you, you know, do everything else when it comes to programming. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a party in Cupertino, so let's get to the picks. <laughs> ben, do you want to start us off? Sure. I've got a lot, so I'm going to go really quickly. This is a game that uh, by an indie developer who sort of just fell into immediate success. I haven't played it in a long time, but if you haven't played it, uh, it's well worth it. It's called Train Yard uh, by Matt Ricks, and uh, he is now a full-time game developer. 
another game that takes use of the uh, game center sort of uh, local matchups is called Space Team. It's a it's a free game and it's hilarious. Uh, basically, you get a screen and the things that you it's telling you to do to fix a spaceship are buttons on somebody else's iPad. So you got to shout out the instructions and it's always like flip the goggle flinger. And he's got to look for that button or switch on his screen, and he's shouting out things to you, and it gets worse the more people there are. Uh, that's a hilarious game. Another app I've been using uh, recently is Duolingo. I think it's a really solid iOS app, and I've been using it to learn a little bit of French. And then some other um, picks. I've got one of my favorite game programming books. is called Game Coding Complete by Mike McShaffrey. And uh, this just sort of totally blew my mind. It's like, I don't know, 1,800 pages or something. It's huge. Uh, but it goes into like how you design games and how you work with assets, and it's completely outdated at this point, but I think the concepts are still relevant, and it's just a fascinating read. And then uh, two videos. Uh, one of them is called The Physics of Light by John Carmack. Uh, he gave this at QuakeCon earlier this year, I think, and it's just a really good talk by one of the luminaries in the game development uh, industry and um, you know how games simplify the physics of light uh, and they can take shortcuts that make it seem real. And then lastly is a, another video by Brett Victor called Inventing on Principle, uh, where he talks about uh, some sort of innovative in-game or like in-app tools you could use to um, sort of get more rapid feedback on what you're building. And uh, I don't want to spoil the punchline, but just go watch it. And those are my picks. All right, James, what are your picks? So I have one pick. I've got a blog post I may have mentioned before, but it's overcoming iOS game memory limits. And I don't do a lot, a whole lot of game stuff, but I ran into a lot of the same type of problems doing kind of a notation engine for a, a music application where we're playing music and drawing parts of the, the screen. So drawing stuff off screen. Um, but, you know, memory management is a problem with a lot of apps. So I've got a blog post from Game Closure, and that's my pick. All right. Andrew, what are your picks? I've got uh, three picks today. So the first one is. The Nerd Blog, which is Big Nerd Ranch's blog, and they they have a lot of um, a lot of good technical posts, mostly about iOS development, although occasionally about other things because I think they're sort of trying to expand to more than just iOS and, and Mac. Second one is a post by Craig Hockenberry on his blog this week, which was in iOS Dev Weekly and Mac Dev Weekly, but it goes through some problems with code signing in the upcoming. Uh, 10.9 release and and also has a solution and it helped me fix this very problem this week. So there's that. And then the last one is a, a little app that I use all the time called Coco Color. It's on the Mac App Store. At, it's I think it's a few bucks and it looks terrible. The UI is really quite poor, <laughs> but it's really useful and it 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 will generate um it'll generate code for NS, NS color, UI color, CSS colors, NS gradient. And that kind of thing with a with a UI that lets you you know do with color picker and and all that. So it can also translate back from an NS color call to you know paste that into your color picker if you want to tweak it. So it's nice. And those are my picks. Awesome, Rod. What are your picks? Hard. Got two picks. Um, the first pick is actually a game that I wrote with some friends a while ago. Um, we haven't updated it because it's it hasn't done well, but it's still interesting because. It actually is a game that you play in the real world. So if you've if you uh, played like the assassination game in college, if you know what that is, it's similar. It's called Ninja Hit, and you use the camera to basically quote kill people, your target. So that it was it was, it was fun to develop. 
So if you want a, an idea of what you can do in the real world, you might check that out. And then my second pick is Joybox, which is a Ruby Motion gem for writing games. It is a wrapper around Cocos 2D and Box 2D, which is a uh, physics engine. And so it provides a higher level of abstraction for writing games, and it looks like a lot of fun. And the website's pretty cool, too. So check that out. And those are my picks. Awesome. All right, I've got a couple of picks. Um, the first one, I'm stealing it off of the Impact JS um, episode that we did on JavaScript Jabber. Uh, it's opengameart.org, and it's a bunch of art that you can use in your games. In fact, I'm going to pick the Impact JS episode where we talked about the. It's actually a, a system for writing games in HTML5, Canvas, and things like that. And they actually have a utility that you can use to port them over to, to iPhone games. I also want to pick the next episode on JavaScript Jabber where our very own Pete Hodgson came on and talked about asynchronous testing. So um, if you're a fan of Pete, then go pick up the latest JavaScript Jabber. And uh, I'll get links to both of those in the show notes as well. Nathan, what are your picks? I've got a few. First of all, there's um, mine are going to point towards the thing that people always seem to ask me when they get started in game development, and that's math. Uh, and math is hard, as we all know. There are some pretty good resources out there for the kind of math that you, you would do as a game developer. Uh, there's a really great series of posts on um, on a 2D linear algebra for game development on the Wolfire blog. Uh, it's called Linear Algebra for Game Developers, and it's a three-parter. Uh, it's a really, really simple, straightforward introduction to um, uh, to vector math and uh uh, well, it's pretty much mostly, and a little, I think there's a little bit of matrix stuff in there as well. But really important if you're building a game where things have to move. Um, it's the math that you will spend most of the time doing. Another one is also math-related, and it's a, a book. that a second edition just recently came out called The 3D Math uh, Primer for Graphics and Game Development. You can pick that up like on Amazon or whatever, but it's the book that taught me 3D math um, or graphics math in general. And uh, then another one is more general game development um, and not necessarily even iOS, but that's uh, alt dev blog a day. And it's a ton of people in the game industry. Just um, it was a kind of a takeoff uh, back in the day when we were doing iDev blog a day, which was a bunch of iOS uh, indie devs just uh, posting to their own blogs and it kind of aggregated them all together. Well, this is the same thing, but it covers the entire game development industry. So there's a ton of people writing games out there that are also blogging about the process, whether it be uh, game AI, physics, uh, art, production, design, whatever, whatever they're putting on their blogs is getting aggregated to alt dev blog a day. And it's uh, it's a fantastic and fascinating resource to follow. So um, I believe those are all my picks for now. Awesome. Kyle, what are your picks? So I have, a, I have three, all apps, uh, surprisingly enough. The first is an app called Sleep Cycle. And um, for, uh, since the iPhone came out, people have been trying to uh, develop an app that can properly detect REM sleep so it can uh, wake you up when you're you know, not in REM sleep. Uh, sleep Cycle is the, uh, the first one I've seen that can actually uh, do it well. I've been using it for about a week now, and it's really it's quite an amazing app. I suggest uh, you check it out. Um, Pivot is a uh, iOS game that's fairly new. It came out a, a few weeks, uh, maybe a, a month ago now, and um, it's a, a very simplistic type game. It's something that you know anybody could have written, even with very limited game programming experience, and it was just such amazing gameplay. Um, it, we were talking about you know doing art-free or low-art type apps. This is a great example of what somebody can do with uh, very limited art resources and still make. A, a really fantastic app 
And the uh, the final one is called uh, Hungry Sharks Evolution. Uh, this is a game that my uh, girlfriend actually got me hooked on. And uh, you play a shark, and it evolves over time and gets bigger, and you just kind of swim around and eat fish. And it's uh, a nice little uh, no-thought action game. I'd like to throw a quick something in there about Pivot. That's a good example of someone who wasn't a game developer becoming one. Whitaker, the guy who built it, actually was doing a bunch of music for indie games and decided he wanted to build his own, and Pivot's one of the ones that came out of that. So it is possible. Yeah, and it's it's doing very well, too, which is always nice to see from uh, smaller, less-known developers. And it's really just a great example of what you can do when um, you don't have tremendous resources behind you. Yeah, that's really cool. And and hopefully we can get a few more people to uh, try their hand at writing games. All right. Well, um, I don't want to take too much more time because I know you guys want to go see the Apple event. So I'm going to wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for having us. It was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks a yeah, lot. Thanks. All right. Well, we will catch you all next week.